1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, we're investigating the world's most mysterious air disasters with aviation journalist Christine Negroni and her book, The Crash Detectives. Christine Negroni is a journalist, aviation blogger, documentary producer and crash investigator with more than 15 years' experience observing and participating in the international effort to create safer skies. She's currently reporting for the New York Times, ABC News and Air and Space. And she's the author of The Crash Detectives, investigating the world's most mysterious air disasters, which we're going to talk about today. Christine, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Tell me, first of all, then, how you got involved in investigating air disasters. The first thing that you that you did majorly was the uh, TWA Flight 800, right. wasn't it?
0: Right. That's the how did a nice girl like you wind up writing about disasters question. I get that. So I I actually was working as a general reporter for CNN. I was a correspondent at CNN. And there was a, an airplane crash in 1996 that I and the rest of the New York Bureau was sent out to uh, cover. And I did that, but I found it very intriguing. I mean, this was interestingly kind of like Malaysia 370 mm-hmm. in that there were the people who believed it was a criminal act and there were the people who believed it was a mechanical issue and they were fighting and there were accusations of cover-up and all of that stuff and I wound up reporting because I came to believe that the investigation was being manipulated by law enforcement for reasons of their own but that that you know there was plenty of evidence to suggest that this really was a mechanical issue and not just a mechanical issue but one that had been known about for 3 mm. decades and yet through for various reasons had not been addressed successfully addressed by the safety authorities and so you know after writing that book I was like this is intriguing this is about machines and it's about people and it's about crime and regulation it's just so many different things and 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 politics and how things appear to be one thing and turn out to be another so after that I wound up working I went to work as a for a law firm as an investigator and this is a law firm that represents people who have died represents the families of people who mm. died in airline crashes and um, I worked as their investigator but of course not 11 had happened at that time, and we were also working on the 9-11 investigation. So it was like being a reporter, but for a private client. And for them, I did a lot of air crash investigations. Large, small, you know, that was my job, uh, you know, in 9-11, so terror was involved as well. And uh, I left that business back in 2008, and I went back into journalism. But now I felt like, you know, I know a specific thing well. I'm a half an inch wide mm-hmm. and a meter deep, and that's the thing I want to write about. I felt like I knew it, and I could write, write about it from a position of comfort.
1: So you mentioned uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, which is the airline that disappeared somewhere over the Indian Ocean a few years ago, and that was a thread, common thread throughout this book, where you return to that story, and, and because obviously we don't know what happened, we still we have clues, but we still don't know what, what happened to it. And of course, what you're doing here is looking at other examples of you know similar accidents or things that we've learned, and perhaps trying to trying to surmise what happened. What do we know? Well,
0: we know that the airplane had been serviced right before the flight, and we know that the captain was an extremely experienced and conscientious pilot. He'd been with Malaysia Airlines for his entire career, and he was an aviation geek. I mean, he loved to fly and did it even when he wasn't flying. He flew a simulator, and he did a remote control aircraft. I mean, you name it, he did it. He was a big aviation geek. His first officer was very young, 27 years old, but he had also been a pilot for several years mm-hmm. on a different kind of aircraft, on an Airbus aircraft, and now he was stepping up to a larger airplane and more responsive. So he was on his last check ride, his last ride as a student, if you will, before he became certified to fly the 737 as a first officer. So he was essentially the, you know, the inferior person on the mm. aircraft in terms of expertise and knowledge of the aircraft, but in no way unsuited. For the flight, we know these things. We know that um, before the plane took off, it was loaded with a couple of interesting things. It was loaded with uh, mangosteens, which are a, a Malaysian. I never heard of them before, but they're apparently delicious, and that's a fruit that grows in in Malaysia and is big product in China. But a huge amount of mangosteens, and mangosteens were out of season, so that you know was is a curious thing that they had on the airplane. They also had lithium ion batteries. And I don't want to say the number off the top of my head because my recollection for numbers isn't good, but it's in the book. A lot, suffice to say, a lot of lithium ion batteries. And these were batteries that were being used. They were Motorola batteries and they were being used for some Motorola electronic device big cargo of that. Now, in the United States and other countries, you can't carry lithium-ion batteries as cargo on passenger flights, but in Malaysia, it's allowed.
1: And later on in the interview, we're going to come back to those batteries okay. and talk about why that okay. might
0: be. Right. Okay. So there was that. So And the other interesting thing that happened to the aircraft just prior to the flight is that the oxygen that is used in the case of an emergency to keep the flight crew oxygenated in the case of a, of a decompression, that those tanks had been topped off. They'd been removed from the aircraft, topped off, reinstalled, and reconnected to the mask. So, you know, they always say the first flight after maintenance is the most dangerous mm-hmm. flight because you want to make sure that the maintenance mm-hmm. guys tightened all the screws. So we know that. So we know that the captain was flying the plane when they first took off. And we know that at some point after they leveled off at 35,000 feet, the first officer took over control of the airplane. And we know that they were at the border of, of one airspace to another. Malaysia was about to hand the airplane over to Vietnam or had uh, handed them off to Vietnam and the only thing remaining to do was for the pilots to get the frequency from Vietnam and dial it in. And there's one more thing we want, w- that we know that I wanted to remind you of. and Oh, and that was this, because it'll come back in the conspiracy when we talk about conspiracies. The airplane was very close to being out of radar-controlled airspace, out of radar space. In other words, had it continued on its path over the South China Sea towards Beijing, it soon would have been unseeable on radar, because radi- radar's boundary is 200 miles. Once you're 200 miles off any coast. You're no longer seen by radar, not civilian radar. And so that airplane was about to leave radar airspace. After that, what we know is that the plane turned back around toward Kuala Lumpur. But instead of actually going to Kuala Lumpur, it made a, it made a turn towards the west, more towards um, Penang. Then it turned north towards an airplane with a long runway called Langkawi, which I will say as an aside, we also know was the airfield that the first officer was most familiar with Mm -hmm. because he had learned to fly there. And it's an airfield with a very long runway, which if you have an airplane that is full of fuel, as this one did, that's where you'd want to put it down because you want more runway because you're a heavy, you're landing heavy. We know that. But then it didn't go towards Langkawi. It made that turn up towards and then veered off to the left. And then it veered to the south. And once it started south, no more changes in direction. It was, at that point, appeared to be a plane no longer under human control.
1: Before we talk about what you think happened, I just want to reiterate something you've just said. The plane was at the point where it was going out of radar range. But we've all got, you know, I've got Google Maps on my phone. There are satellites. We've all got GPS in our cars. Yet we still live in a world where you can't tell where a plane is when it's flying over the sea if it's over the you know the middle of the pacific for instance and it's out of range of land
0: it's true and it's interesting because it's not that the industry hasn't wanted to fix that problem the issue for aviation is it's not as nimble as other digital Providers, you know, my phone is replaced every two years, every mm-hmm. three years. The technology that today seems fantastic, tomorrow seems so old fashioned. And so we're constantly leapfrogging onto newer, newer, newer. But you can't do that in an airplane. Planes are not disposable. You don't get rid of it after two years. And so before, I think, I think this is a big part of the issue, before the industry signs on to something that's going to have to be installed on 600 airplanes just for one airline, you know, and that by however, however many airplanes there are in the world, tens of thousands, I'm sure... They want to know that, okay, we're about to invest X million dollars in this new tracking technology. Is this the technology we're going to be using five years down the road? Ten years even. And I'm not so sure anyone can say that now. Can you say it about anything now? (laughs) And that, I think, is a real dilemma for them. And I don't think that the industry had any idea that things were
1: going to move as fast as they have. I'm James Ward. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So let's talk about what you think, you know, bearing in mind the evidence that we have, the likelihood compared to other accidents that have happened, what do you think happened here?
0: Well, okay, so so we've taken, I I left you with the facts, I interrupted the facts from the point of the flight after 35,000 feet or after it had reached 35,000 feet. And we know the captain turned the airplane, control of the airplane over to the first officer because the captain was making the radio calls and that's the way that works. So the first officer's flying the airplane and now we're getting into Christine Negroni suspects and the captain decided to leave the cockpit. I think he went to the bathroom, because I have plenty of experience at my age with men who who are that age, and that's what they like to do. Mm -hmm. They go to the bathroom more often than they did when they were younger. And he is a coffee drinker, so he'd have another reason to want to go to the bathroom after two hours. I think he got up and maybe just stretched his legs, whatever. He left the cockpit. He went into the bathroom. He went back to talk to a flight attendant, and the first officer's in there alone. And the first officer, like any 27-year-old I can imagine, is thinking, this, oh, I rule, I rock. I'm in charge of this airplane, it's mine, I'm responsible for this multi-million dollar airplane, I'm taking these people, I'm capable. He's having fun, as anyone would be. And boom, something happens. I don't know where there was a decompression, but there's every reason to believe there was a massive decompression of the aircraft that caused that pilot to immediately lose oxygen to have her oxygen to come rushing out of his body because an airplane a triple seven is pressurized to eight thousand feet and when when the airplane decompresses it goes from eight thousand feet to something in the neighborhood of 35, because that's where they were.
1: That, that, just to, to interrupt me there, that was something I didn't know until I read in this book. I would really have just presumed that it was sea level, the mm. the pressure. Why 8,000 feet?
0: 8,000 feet when they, is actually a legacy of World War II. So when the airlines were trying to think, okay, let's pressurize an airplane, and they don't want to put too much stress on the fuselage, mm-hmm. because it's like being on... Pressurizing an airplane is... The most similar thing is being inside a balloon. You push the air in and then the walls of the airplane hold it in. So you are in an inflated aluminum tube. And they don't want to go to sea level because sea level is just that much more pressure. So it really was an engineering decision to how do we make people feel comfortable on a flight without overstressing the aircraft. And we remember the Comet was an airplane that did get overstressed mm-hmm. and blow apart and there were three of them that blew apart and we'll
1: get to that a bit yeah. later on <laughs> as well <laughs> i'm
0: leaping ahead from disaster to disaster i will just skip through the field of disasters anyway
1: so, so we're basically so, so, at the top of when you're on a plane when you fly on the plane you're basically at the top of a you know a reasonably high, high t- hill yeah. correct
0: which is why some people feel lightheaded mm-hmm. that's why alcohol has a more dramatic effect on you because mm-hmm. all that you know when alcohol gets into your bloodstream and there's all that oxygen yeah but now you get you know less oxygen in there And some people's color vision is affected. I mean, these are just things that happen. But at any rate, so it's at 8,000 feet, and they lose pressurization, and the first officer knows... I mean, it's not subtle. It would be a bang. The windows of the cockpit would have suddenly turned uh, frosty because mm-hmm. there's all that humidity, of humans emit humidity, and it's 35,000 feet. That's dry and cold, and all of that you know, humidity in the air turns to ice, and it sticks to the glass. That's what would have happened. It would have been chilly for him. He would have felt that cold. Temperature's minus 60 degrees. Sorry, that's Fahrenheit. I can't do the translation, but minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit. It is cold. So he immediately knows he has a problem. One of the first symptoms of hypoxia is trembling of the extremities. He's got shaking hands. He's reaching over with his shaking hands to dial in the emergency frequency on the transponder. He might have even been trying to deal with the Vietnamese at this time because that was the task that was left to him. But he turns the transponder, instead of turning it to 7700, which is the International Emergency Code, he turns it to standby. And that's that. I don't think he did it intentionally. I think he inadvertently put it to standby in an attempt to notify people that he had a problem. And now he puts his mask on. And here's the second problem. He puts his mask on, and instead of getting 100% oxygen under pressure, which would be required at that altitude to rejuvenate him, he could be alive with less, but to rejuvenate him and bring him back to mental function, he needs, it's like putting your face up to a, an air conditioning vent. He puts the mask on, and he waits to feel better, or he hopes to feel better. And he probably does a little, mm-hmm. but he's not getting what he needs to resuscitate him intellectually. And from that point on, everything he does is idiotic because he doesn't have the mental capacity. There's no, not enough oxygen feeding his brain. So he turns the plane around. I'll take it back to Kuala Lumpur. But then he thinks, no, not Kuala Lumpur. I'll take it to Penang. So he takes it to Penang. Then he thinks, wait a minute, Langkawi might be better. I got an airplane. It's heavy. I can land this airplane there. I know the runway, you know, in my sleep. But he doesn't go to Langkawi either. Maybe he's overshot it. Maybe he thinks he's going to go back. Maybe he doesn't know what the hell's going on. Very likely that. He turns the plane to the south, and that's the end of him. That's when he, that's, I believe, when he loses consciousness or dies. Everyone else in the back, you know, has been dead for a while because those oxygen masks only Uh give you 12 minutes worth of oxygen. So they've been dead for a while. The captain's never able to get out of the bathroom. He's back there in the bathroom, or he's back with the flight attendant. He's got a fairly long walk back to the cockpit. I don't think he could have made it.
1: And then the, fly, the plane would have just carried on until flying until it ran, until out, it of ran out of fuel.
0: Until it ran out <laughs> of fuel. Now, we're back, into the fact, we're back into fact territory when we talk about, about the plane running out of fuel. Because we know how much fuel was loaded on the airplane. <laughs> so we know how long the plane could have flown. And we know how long the plane had power because of the Inmarsat satellites. So we know the plane had power for about the same amount of time as the plane had fuel. So that
1: we know. As I mentioned, you, you know, you, this surmise comes from looking at other examples of accidents that have happened where a similar thing has occurred. And I wanted to talk about an example of decompression, which is uh, the Greek flight, Helios Flight 522. Tell us about that accident.
0: Well, Helios 522 happened in 2005 and Malaysia 370 happened in 2014. So I was in Malaysia at the time when we learned. So I came there maybe a week after maybe uh, six days after it disappeared. But right around the time that they first announced, the Malaysians first announced, oh, the plane was actually flying. Don't double check me on the timing, six days, whatever. (laughs) But I can tell you for a fact, I was there when they came out and said, we have an announcement to make. The plane was flying for seven hours. That was huge. I mean, we were like, what do you mean it was flying? Because everyone thought the plane had crashed, you know, something had happened. It had crashed into the South China Sea on its way to Beijing. This was, I mean, truly, this was like earth shaking for us. And that's when I thought flying seven hours, same course for the last five hours. This sounds like Helios 522. That's what I'm thinking. I knew about Helios 522 because I had written a lengthy article about decompression hypoxia and other cases I know uh, over here in the UK they are very uh, enthusiastic about golf and Payne Stewart he was our American <laughs> golf hero and he had died in, an, in a case just like that the plane lost pressurization the pilots didn't realize it or couldn't do anything about it so everyone fell unconscious and the plane continued on until it ran out of fuel Payne Stewart led me to Helios <laughs> and Helios is a somewhat similar story and somewhat different. It's different in that that airplane took off and the pilots probably failed to pressurize the aircraft. Maybe they had a mechanical problem. I don't, we don't know why it failed to pressurize. We do know it did not pressurize. Mm-hmm. So the plane takes off and it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's normal. But at about 10,000, 12,000 feet, they get an, an alarm. And the alarm and the oxygen masks drop. So now they know, they should know, they have a problem with pressurization in the aircraft unfortunately they were both smokers as well they didn't realize that they were already suffering the effects of oxygen deprivation Mm -hmm. because rather than hear the alarm and think oh we have a pressurization problem let's put on our masks they think oh we have a problem with the takeoff configuration let's fix the problem so they start trying to work on a problem they don't have without putting their masks on and then they both fall unconscious So the plane continues. It's on autopilot to Athens. It continues to climb. It reaches cruise altitude. It heads towards Athens. Two hours pass. Everyone in the airplane is surely dead because they don't have any oxygen. Except for one guy. He's a flight attendant who's also training to be a pilot. And he remarkably has gotten a hold of the flight crew oxygen bottles, each of which holds a half an hour of oxygen. And he is running through these bottles one after another after another keeping himself alive. What he hasn't done is gone into the cockpit to find out what's gone on. But after two hours, he's at the end of his last bottle. Now he goes in and he goes into the cockpit and he sees the frosted glass. He sees the first officer dead over the oak. He sees the captain dead behind a seat. He sits down in the captain's seat. He puts the captain's air mask, oxygen mask on and proceeds to say, mayday, mayday. He knows he's in trouble. He's getting oxygen now. And the Greek fighter pilots were on either side of the airplane. They've been dispatched because this plane mm-hmm. is flying in Greek airspace without any kind of radar uh, uh, radio. They're trying to figure out why nobody's talking and there's no, you know, and there's no communication from this flight crew. And they see the guy enter the cockpit, and now they figured it out because they're pilots. They know what frosted windshield means. It means that airplane has no pressurization, and if nobody's talking, it's because they're dead. So they see the guy enter. They must have been kind of thrilled with that, and they motion follow us. But he can't follow them because they're seven minutes away from running out of fuel. Mm -hmm. So he fumbles around, but the first engine begins to uh, run out of fuel, and then the second, and then the plane crashes into the side of a mountain. (laughs) ¶¶
1: Yeah, listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Christine Negroni. We're talking about her book, The Crash Detectives, investigating the world's most mysterious air disasters. And Christine, we were talking for quite a while in the first part about Malaysia Air's flight 370. And again, people might think, you know, this idea of a, a new state-of-the-art, airline just disappearing and is having no idea what happened to it, it must be you know a one in a million event but it has happened before and you talk about well, way back in 1938 the story of a, a Pan Am flying boat the Hawaii Clipper tell us that story
0: well the Hawaii Clippers really caught my attention because it was Malaysia 370 70 years earlier. It's kind of remarkable. You know, the older I get, the more I see that, you know, history, you just change the names and a few of the details, but generally speaking, we just do the same things over and over again. The Hawaii Clipper, this plane was um, a flying boat, as you said, a beautiful flying boat, and it was hopscotching as they did uh, across the Pacific Islands on their way to, the ultimate destination was the Philippines, and um, it was leaving Guam, so it was not I think, the fifth day of the flight. It was leaving Guam and headed towards the Philippines, and they were radioing to the to the base in um in the philippines and they had encountered some rain and they said hang on the the pilot said hang on we got some uh or the radio operator, we got some uh, rain here, we'll ring you back. And then they never did. And that was the last. That was the last they heard. So, you know, they sent out boats to look um, and look around, but nothing showed up. I mean, there was no, no airplane, no passengers, no luggage, no nothing. And briefly they found some oil on the water, which they thought, oh, maybe it's aviation fuel, which interestingly happened with Malaysia 370. They thought they found some oil in the South China Sea. But they never did, and they never found anything. And it turned out the oil was not aviation fuel. So the you know, the other interesting thing that happened with the Hawaii Clipper. Was that all of these people started talking about? Oh, it must have been the Japanese. The Japanese must have hijacked the plane and and they stole the technology of the engines. And you know there there was a an us versus them uh, at the time because we were coming up to the Western world was coming up to World War Two and the Japanese were the enemy, and here we are in Malaysia 370 and 214. I remember some of the first coverage was that this was a Malaysia. Uh, this was a, a Muslim nation, and you know there were many Islamic people there, and could it be an is Islam- act Islamic terrorism is the same sort of fear of us versus them. And I think that fed a lot of the rumors that in Malaysia 370, the plane had been, you know, the pilots had, had taken it for a suicide or that someone had taken it as an act of Islamic terrorism. But in in neither case was there evidence that could lead you to that conclusively. Now, there was a little bit in the Hawaii Clipper that, to suggest the Japanese had been trying to sabotage the flying boat. They had issues with Pan Am, with an American company setting up bases in the Pacific and islands that were not supposed to be... Uh, under the control of the military. So there were some reasons to believe that the Japanese might have had a hand in it. But look, they've never found anything. And, you know, no one's talked. So at this point, it could just as well have been an accident like this. I mean, look, aviation wasn't as safe there as it is now. It's a flying boat, you know, it's... They blew up and they sunk and, you know, lots of things could have happened.
1: Well, also just the idea of crossing the Pacific in in those days, this was a service flying from San Francisco to to the Philippines. And that would have taken four or five days. They would do these hops from one island to another to Guam and and where have you. You also talk in the book about, you know, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and and a very similar thing. You know, there was an island that she was supposed to be aiming for somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. Never made it.
0: Right. They sort of beg the question, like, yeah, she could have been kidnapped by the Japanese, but if you were displaced, like, the likely outcomes... For a woman who was not proficient in radio navigation, whose navigator was a known alcoholic, who she expressed concerns about days before the flight, if you take a look at the fact that the island was one mile wide in the middle of a vast ocean that she was approaching overnight, if you take a look at those factors and that she had saved the most difficult part of her journey for the end when she was most fatigued and concerned, all of that sounds more like she failed because there were a lot of factors working against her. Yeah, it could have been this, but it looks more like a duck. I don't know whether you have that here, but we say if it looks like, if it squawks like a duck, it it looks like a duck to me. It doesn't look like an act of piracy or terrorism. And in Malaysia 370, there's enough evidence from what I uncovered to suggest something that looks more like a duck Mm -hmm. than something that looks like a case of terrorism or hijacking.
1: Hey, let's look at a a disaster where there's a a lot of conspiracy theories around it. And it does indeed look incredibly murky. This is the, um, the plague crash that killed um, the UN Secretary General Dag Hammershand in, mm-hmm. um, in Africa in 1961. Right. There's lots yeah. of weird inconsistencies with this one.
0: Yeah, well oh, no, there are. There are. And and then the other thing is, and this happens, I mean, Malaysia's, uh, you know, it, it may be politically uh, more complicated, actually we're all pretty complicated these days, but it, it may be more of a strong man government than some of the countries where other accidents were investigated, but certainly when we're talking about the Congo go in the pre in the days where de- of decolonization when all sorts of craziness was happening I mean were the Brits in charge were the Belgians in charge you and know Congolese and, and, yeah. and mercy I mean you know when, <laughs> just that cast of characters is like I don't think we're gonna get a completely unbiased investigation that we got to start with that you know so there was that I mean there was the fact that bullets were found in the bodies of some of the passengers and there would be no unless somebody on the plane shot someone there's no way for those bullets to be in the bodies of the passengers. So that in itself is odd. And the plane crashed into the woods and everybody else in the airplane is still in the airplane. But Dag, is propped against a tree. I mean, these just things defy explanation. And then there's a survivor who everyone who, when they see him thinks, oh, he's not in such bad shape. Great, we have a survivor who mysteriously dies a week later, whose all of his conversations were tape recorded, but the tape can't be found. I mean, you, you, you look at things like that and you think, yeah, this doesn't look like a duck to me. <laughs> this does not look like a duck. This looks like one of the Turkin gooses or something. There's a lot of different things on it.
1: Okay, let's talk about a... We've been talking about, you know, a, a couple of crashes where there are conspiracy theories around them. And, you know, and I say conspiracy theories in that, in that way. Far-fetched conspiracy theories is obviously what I mean by that. I want to talk about one which I think is probably the most shocking story in the book, which really happened, where there was a conspiracy and a cover-up. Um, and this is Air New Zealand Flight 901. And a disaster that happened in my lifetime. I mean, this was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And it's an amazing story. It is. It really
0: is. And, you know, I I think I made it the last one in my section on conspiracies. And the way I describe it is if you told somebody this story, they'd think you were crazy. But all of the evidence is there. And, you know, to add to it, I knew Ron Chippendale because we were members of the same organization, the International Society of Air Safety Investigators. He was a well-respected, and I, I only knew him as a passing acquaintance, but people whose opinion I know and respect knew and respected his opinion. So it was really incredible to me. But the evidence speaks for itself. The plane was flying on a sightseeing flight, over uh, they, they leave Auckland they fly down four hours down people are given champagne I mean it's like a first class flight the whole way in a big DC 10 they fly down uh, there's an expert in an Antarctica expert on board who gives them We should commentary. say this is a, a
1: sightseeing trip from New Zealand to yeah, Antarctica Yeah
0: yeah, yeah. sorry yeah. <laughs> sorry thank you for keeping me on track so they're on this sightseeing trip and they're uh, you know they go down they spend the four hours down and maybe you know 60 minutes flying around and then they and they go back up that's the day and they do this once a week one month a year as a special treat. And they've done it for two years when this accident
1: happened. And we should say this is a this is a big play. This DC is a 10, 10. Big, Yeah. This is not plane. like a yeah, little yeah. tiny no, trick no. with forty people on board. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge it's, it's, it's an airliner.
0: Yeah, I mean it's uh it's not as big as the 747, but almost. I yeah. think it was It was built as a competitor to yeah. the 747. So they're flying down there, and the pilots, who had not ever... had None of them had ever flown the route before. Well, I shouldn't say that. The flight engineer had. But the pilot and the co-pilot had not ever flown the route before, but they had done a tutorial. And they'd done this tutorial uh, and simulator session in which they were told the route they would fly. They would fly in over the ocean, over the sea ice. They would do the circuit around the uh, base, and then they would fly back. So they get to the airport and, and the guy studied, the captain studies it the night before. There's this lovely story about him showing his daughters, because they were all excited he was going to fly to Antarctica. You know, he shows them where he's going to go and blah, blah, blah. So they get on the plane, and, and the last minute they say, oh, uh, there's just new coordinates. Uh, or, or I don't think they told them there were new coordinates, but they, they, had given, they were given the coordinates to put into their,
1: mm-hmm.
0: into their uh, navigation system, and they just entered them. They would have no way of knowing that those were not the coordinates that they had flown in the simulator. But these new coordinates take them right into Mount Erebus, not over the sea ice. Mount Erebus is uh, 11,000 feet. So they're flying, and you know, now they're going to descend and take a look around because the air is clear, and they descend, and bam, they fly right into a mountain. Well, you say, well, if the air was clear, how could they fly into a mountain? Well, what they didn't know, which we learn, is that in certain meteorological conditions, a white mountain against a white sky and white snow will disappear. So they're looking out of their window, and they see nothing. Meanwhile, there's a volcano right in front of them. But they didn't see it because of this thing called sector blindness. So that's the story. But what is kept from the public, all they know is the pilot descended into a mountain. And and at one point, the the Civil Aviation Authority says, we can only presume that both of them were crazy. You know, that they both were struck with a mental illness. That's his theory about mm-hmm. what happened. So what they don't know, I mean, what the general public doesn't know is that the both of these pilots had spoken to their families and everyone else about they thought they were flying over sea ice. But the people who changed the coordinates right before the flight, well, they know they changed the coordinates. So they tell the boss, but the boss doesn't tell anybody else. Let's keep it secret because... Our changing of the coordinates made them fly into a mountain. And that's really the cover-up. That's the initiation of the cover-up. They don't want anyone to know that they changed the coordinates at the last minute. And it doesn't come out until, I think, an accident happened in November. Sometime in February, a newspaper reporter gets fed the story, and he writes it, and no one picks up on it because... They don't understand what that means. Oh, they changed the coordinates. What does that mean? And so it continues to be sort of the pilots were just crazy and they flew into a mountain. They killed all these people. So it doesn't come out until like the following April or May. And then, you know, it starts to become clear because now all the pilots and their wives and families are aware of what's happened. They start saying, no, no, if you change the coordinates, that means that they didn't know they were flying over the ocean anymore. So that's the story.
1: I mean, it went further than that. They the airline burgled one of the pilots' houses and Maybe they stole both. documents. Maybe yeah. both.
0: There's reason to believe they actually went into both. But only the first, only the pi- the wife of the first officer knows for a fact that things <laughs> were taken from her home. The captain's wife reported that her house had been broken into, but could never find anything missing. So. You know, they, they conclude, since the first officer's house was burgled, that it was probably the airline as well. But also changing information. I mean, the mm-hmm. airline was involved in, in convincing the investigator that certain things that were said on the cockpit voice recorder were not said. I mean, to delete 53 things that the committee had, had heard, and to add words that the committee had not heard, something that's unheard of in accident investigations. So, you know, to make it sound as if the pilots uh, didn't know where they were. Yeah, so there was just a lot of a lot of craziness. But you know, interestingly, they never actually that Air New Zealand I think actually I shouldn't I shouldn't say that in the past couple of years I think Air New Zealand finally issued an apology. But the government has never withdrawn the report suggesting that the pilots flew into the mountain, saw it and flew into it. They never, even though there are now two official reports, they are two reports in conflict. They've never rescinded the original one which was the product of this cover up.
1: I'm Michael Brooks. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Another theme of this book, obviously, is about investigating crashes, and we can learn from those crashes. Obviously, the, you know, the airlines are supposed to learn. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But take lessons from the, the crashes and make air travel safer. I want to look at a few examples of where perhaps we've learned something or, or indeed haven't. And first of all, you've already mentioned the, um, the so glamorous de Havilland Comet, the first jet passenger airline. Which, as we now know, was just a a disaster waiting to happen. (laughs) Tell us the story of the comet. You
0: don't want to be the first. You really don't. You know, I I met a fellow from Airbus the other day and we were talking about the Dreamliner and its lithium-ion battery problems, which are in the book. And he said, yeah, you know, I said, well, I guess Airbus is pretty happy it happened to the Dreamliner first because you could go back and fix. And in fact, that's the case. I mean, that is both the glory and the penalty of being the first out is that people learn from your mistakes. In the case of the comet, they had this amazing jet aircraft and they'd done a lot of things right, but they didn't do everything right and they didn't know. And you know, they they knew the plane was coming apart, but they just didn't know why. They had other issues with the way the plane took off, it's handling characteristics close to the ground because they were all transitioning from propeller planes to jets. And the aerodynamics are different. So, you know, they they were learning as they went along. Unfortunately, they had three accidents in which a number of people died before they figured out what the problem was. And the airplane became, I mean, the second version and the third version became apparently quite robust and reliable. But I think that the Comet 4s were flying into the 1980s. You can't argue with that. But sometimes learning can be painful.
1: Well, I said we were going to talk about the lithium-ion batteries uh-huh. again, and you, you've just mentioned them again. So tell us about the story of the, the Boeing Dreamliner 787 and, and its battery saga.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, when I was talking to the fellow from Airbus and, and someone else, this was at a discussion at the Royal Aeronautical Society, so there were a lot of people in, involved in the conversation. Someone said, you know, but you gotta you got to credit Boeing for making a remarkable aircraft. I mean, it is a remarkable aircraft. There's no question about it. But I, And I said in reply, I said, listen i wouldn't be so hard on boeing they did make a great aircraft but i wouldn't be so hard on them if they didn't know from 2006 onward that the lithium-ion battery was volatile and unpredictable and complicated and that they did know because at the very same time that boeing was saying we want to have an airplane that's just relies on electrics far more more fuel efficient we want to save weight Let's use a battery. Let's use a whole new kind of battery. Let's use the lithium-ion battery. The same time they're saying that the industry, the electronics industry, is having its largest ever recall of lithium-ion cobalt oxide batteries. The very same chemistry Boeing wants to use. So you know the whole computer, camera, personal electronic device industry is saying, "Eek, lithium-ion. We got some problems and pulling them off." Boeing is saying, yeah, let's put it on. And it was so unknown. I mean, in the, I guess in the battery industry, they understood lithium ion batteries. But when Boeing was applying to put the battery on the airplane, because it was new and they had to apply for certification of it, they said, look, we'll put this battery on, but we will make sure it will never fail. It will never go into thermal runaway. It will never emit smoke. Uh, We will make sure this will not happen. We'll never have a fire. And then the, you know, people are at So the FAA says, okay, well, I hear your promise. Let's put it out to the industry. This is how rules are made in, the, in America. Let's put it out to the industry and hear their comments. Well, only one entity, and I can tell you, when, people, when they put stuff out for comments, you hear from a lot of, like, obscure companies that make widgets and everything else with their opinion. Nobody in the industry, it came out, it was like a vacuum. Nobody had anything to say about lithium-ion batteries on the airplane except the pilots' union. And the pilots union put a couple of papers forward saying, uh, well, you know, lithium ion could be fires, could be bad. We're not so sure. And the reason that they didn't even have that much on it is because they didn't know. Even the pilots didn't know about lithium ion batteries. But they thought what they'd heard was not good, and they thought they should at least be on the record. So they put these things forward. And then, so that's when Boeing says, okay, great, I understand you got a fire concern. I understand you got a smoke concern. We'll make sure there is none. And they promised there would be none. And then two times in the progress of improving this battery and getting it onto the airplane, two times they wound up with a big problem with the lithium-ion battery. And two times Boeing went back and said, maybe we should reconsider our choice of power source. And two times they said, nah, let's just go with it. So when, this started, when the lithium-ion battery goes onto airplanes and they start in service, and then within 10 days they wind up with two events, I get that the new adopter has to recognize that there, there may be problems. But they had to know. They'd seen the problems from 2006 to 2011. For them to then say we had no idea the batteries would do this just begs the question, why didn't you know? They never consulted people in the industry about batteries. They kept the whole thing in-house. The people making the batteries, the GS GS UASA, had never made a battery for this kind of application. I mean, everywhere you looked, it was not well thought out.
1: We should perhaps say what the issue with the battery was because, you know, we've all got batteries again this is not a battery running out of power this is very much a um a, you know samsung note it's a samsung, issue yeah
0: it's a right that's why i think i don't need to explain lithium ion batteries anymore i did until samsung Note Seven. after that yeah i mean and in fact when i talk to audiences that don't know a lot about aviation and i say lithium ion batteries pause samsung 7 you know they get it they're all nodding they get it yeah i mean these are batteries that When they catch fire...
1: It really goes on fire. All right, they
0: create their own fuel. There is a fellow, and I talk about him in my book, there is a fellow who is investigating lithium-ion batteries, lithium-ion, the chemistry, the way they catch fire as a low-energy nuclear reaction. He thinks they're so, you know, what we think is scary and scary and scary, he thinks, wow, we could create a nuclear energy source. So if anyone's talking about a nuclear energy source in a battery that's going on an airplane... I'm thinking that's not such a good idea, and I don't think I'm alone. But rather than after they had these problems and you know, and they came up with a solution in which they'd put the battery in a titanium housing and they'd put the housing inside the airplane and then they run a big chimney out the side so that if the battery fails, all the smoke will go outside and it can burn itself out because it's in titanium. They'd let the airplanes fly again, and darned if there weren't more battery failures. So now we've got battery failures, and I call up the, because I think this is a story separate from my book, because I was still writing the book, but I was still doing journalism. I called up the FAA, and I said, listen, tell me how many, since the fix, how many batteries have had failures similar to the pre-fix, you know, the, the Japan Airlines issues. And she said, I can't tell you. What do you mean you can't tell me? She said, I can't tell you, because we're not keeping track. The airplane manufacturer to say we will not have fire we will now not have smoke is now reduced to we will have fire we will have smoke and we don't even have to tell you when and that's the state of the dreamliner in 2017 selling a little or a lot
1: listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Christine Negroni. We're talking about the crash detectives investigating the world's most mysterious air disasters. And, Christine, we've mentioned a couple of cases where there's been a problem with a plane or the equipment, but in the investigation, the pilots are blamed, Um, the Air New Zealand disaster being one of them. But there are pilot errors, right? Pilots are human, and and a lot of disasters are caused by pilot errors. And, And once these disasters happen again, there is things done, steps taken to try and prevent those. And I want to talk about, well, what still remains the worst air disaster the Tenerife 1977 disaster remind us what happened there and then we can talk about there was a culture of macho right stuff the pilot is always right, right right
0: right right and if you go back and look at movies from the 30s and 40s uh the high and the mighty and films like that. I mean, they really I mean the the captain slaps the first officer. I mean, truly. It was a very different culture. But in, in the uh, Tenerife disaster, that was actually a, a rather small airport, or small in comparison to Gran Canaria, which is where everybody went. I mean, I guess it's a big tourist destination in Europe. and in, in America we don't don't know it so well. But you know, they would send in these big Boeing seven forty sevens. The Boeing seven forty seven had been flying for uh, three or four years. It was a very glamorous airplane and they'd bring these hundreds and hundreds of tourists into Gran Canaria for what you go to a resort for. And, um, there was a bomb threat at that airport. I think it's called Los Rodeos airport. And because of the bomb threat, they had to take all these uh, jumbo jets and divert them to another airport until that, you know, they were able to reopen the airport at Los Rodeos. So they sent them into Tenerife and, uh, You know, and then there are just piles and piles of 747s and every other kind of large airplane when awaiting for the airport in Gran Canaria to open, and then when they open the they open the airport, they send the start sending the 747s back out. So because it is a small airport and and people were parked uh, planes were parked on one of the the runways or the taxiways, they would send the airplanes down taxiing down the runway. Then at the end of the runway, they'd turn around and take off. And there'd be somebody behind, a plane behind the first one, and that plane would veer off onto a taxiway while the first plane was taking off. Then the second plane would pull on out and then take off. So in other words, at some point in time, this is a complicated way of explaining that at some point in time, one airplane would be facing the other airplane. (laughs) And the plane that was going to take off had to wait until the plane he was facing pulled off the taxiway. Now, it is sunny when this operation begins. But after the first, and, and two planes take off, and the next two come down, the KLM 747 is first, and he, li- he turns around, he lines up, and he's got clear skies. But where the other 747 is, about a mile down the runway, he's in fog. He can't see anything. And he thinks it's foggy, they've closed the airport again. So he's looking for the taxiway, but he's in fog, he can't see it. So they're kind of creeping along, but they're not in any big rush or any big hurry because he thinks the airport's closed meanwhile back in the sunny side of the airport the captain is thinking we got to get this airplane going I'm almost meeting my flight duty times, meaning if I don't get to Grand Canaria by a certain time, I'm going to have to overnight or be in violation. If I have to overnight, 240 or 350 or however many people who are going to get on this plane, they're going to have to overnight. And that's going to cost the company a lot of money. So he wants to take off. So he starts to take off. And the first officer says to him, are they clear? Are they clear? And he, uh, there's a, actually, I'm getting that a little bit confused. But the point is he wants to take off and the first officer doesn't. Mm-hmm. But he, and he indicates in a, somewhat hesitant way that maybe the other 747 isn't off the runway and at first the captain pauses but after a minute he says we go and they take off and so they're rolling down the runway meanwhile the pan am is still in the fog he can't see the klm and just as it, it gets close enough so that he can see it he starts the first officer starts screaming pull off pull off pull off and the klm 747 sees it's got a 747 in front of him he sa- he just pulls the yoke back he's not at takeoff speed. But he pulls the yoke back just to get up in the air, and he gets up in the air, but he can't sustain it, and it clips up the it clips off the roof of the 747. So big fire. I mean, the airplane, the KLM, had just been refueled. Big fire results. Sixty some odd people survive, and everyone else, five hundred and change, die in the fire. And that's why the biggest airline disaster in the world, uh, at the time, and even to this day, and, and biggest you know biggest disaster in one in one accident. But the second part was people were like, how did that captain get it so wrong? How did two other officers on the flight deck, having concern that the runway was not cleared, why did they not speak up? And that equation, that's where the captain's the boss and you're just there to sort of get his coffee, Mm -hmm. that equation began to shift that day. And here we are, we're many years later, we still have accidents in which this this happens. But it's not considered good airmanship anymore to not speak your mind when there's a safety issue regardless of what your position is on the airplane
1: being an airline pilot is obviously you know an incredibly difficult responsible also glamorous job it's not for everybody you talk about you know you take some of the uh, aptitude tests and over the course of this book that the pilots have to take and you also talk about a um particularly Lothansa's pilot school let's talk about how pilots are selected
0: well uh, Lufthansa is very is very um, conscientious about hiring its pilots and they undergo two weeks of selection before they even get picked to go on the program and there's financial incentive for that because they're going to train them they're going to teach them how to fly and that's a big investment they're probably a million dollars ahead by the time you've gotten them through their flight school uh, so they want to make sure that, you know, they're going to stick it out. You know, and so they do, they do things like decision-making skills and ability to multitask and, you know, placidity of personality without being too placid. And, you know, I, I talk about the strengths and the weaknesses, but they, the line they give you at lufthansa is, you can train anyone to fly. But you can't give them the kind of personality they need that, you know, they either have or they don't Mm -hmm. to be able to be unflappable, to be able to listen to others, but be decisive, to be, you know, be flexible if things change but stick with the standard operating procedures. You know, there really is a, a, a balance there. Now, having said that, LaFlanza is the very flight school that accepted Andres uh, L- Lubovich Lubitz. Uh, thank you Lubez. for helping me with my memory. I was gonna bring him up. Andres Lubez, you know, they accepted him into the program and, you know, within the first few months of his flight training before he even comes to learn how to fly just at ground school, it's so difficult that he has a nervous breakdown and, and drops out. And then knowing that he has this, you know, problem with depression, accept him back, send him to flight school, and you know. So you have to wonder. Well, they say their screening is very difficult, but sometimes people fall through the gaps.
1: So he goes on to pilot a um. What's the What's the airline called? The German, uh, wings. German Wings. Euro Wings now, but it was yeah, German Wings. The German at the Wings, time. which is the um, Lufthansa's, um you know. Diffusion range, shall we say? Yeah, low-cost carrier. Uh, low, yeah, low <laughs> cost carrier. Um, he goes on to to deliberately pilot the plane into a mountain. You then give a you know rather alarming list of other examples of where something similar has has happened. How how often does that happen? That now, I'm going to challenge that in the
0: movie Annie Hall. Do you remember the movie Annie Hall? When uh, he course. and and Diane Keaton they go to the shrink. <laughs> And he says, uh, the shrink says to Woody Allen, how often do you have sex? He says, never, Terrible. three times once a week. A week. Yeah. yeah. And then Annie Hall <laughs> says, all the time, once or three times a week, whatever it is. And then, and that, what you just said is like, you give this horrifying list. And I'm thinking the whole point of that list was to show how infrequent it is. <laughs>
1: You give a list of about six examples. Where, six examples where pilots have... in
0: basically the history yeah. of aviation, okay. or these, whatever. These are
1: all of the examples ever where a pilot <laughs> when has you deliberately think of crashed a plane. how
0: many flights there are, I ju- and 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 some of them even you know Egypt Air. Some people say wasn't you know, uh, Silk Air, some people argue. I just think that it's not you know, that's a very small small number. But yes, it has happened. It has happened. There's no question about it. It has happened. But you know, part of aviation safety is that you work with what is, you, you fix what is likely to happen. Because if you go to everything that could happen if you know, everything could happen. You could make an airplane that couldn't fly because it has so many, you know, protections. You have to look is, where are most people at risk? Mm-hmm. And in the United States, and maybe in, in the UK I don't know but in the United States before you can make a rule that says for example uh, fuel tanks cannot be in an explosive state you have to put in a nerding system in fuel tanks cannot be an explosive state that's a new law came about in 2006 so when designing new airplanes they have to design that you won't have hot tanks before they could actually make that law they had to go and look at every fuel tank explosion that had ever been how many people died and do the math if every person is worth and I'm gonna pick a number because I don't remember off the top of my head but let's say it's 2.3 million dollars if every human life is worth 2.3 and we've lost hundred people hundred people times 2.3 equals X how much would it cost to put the fix on the airplane and if that X is lower than the loss of people they won't do it. Mm-hmm. But if the, if, I'm sorry, the reverse, if the X is lower than loss of people, they will do it. But if the X is larger, if it's going to cost more than the loss of human life, they won't do it. And it sounds very cruel. But you do have to say, how much do you want to spend on a fix of a problem you're not likely to have? It does make sense. You make those decisions every day. Mm-hmm. Am I going to repair my washing machine? I'm going to sell the house in three years or not. That's a cost-benefit analysis.
1: OK, well, I've, I've sort of besmirched the honour of pilots there. And, <laughs> and, and let's finish off the interview getting that back. You spend time at the end of the book talking about ways in which pilots, so, you know, their knowledge and experience, teamwork between colleagues, their ability to make decisions is important, remains important. And um, everybody will know that planes are getting more and more automated. There's this idea that... Planes nowadays almost fly themselves. Are they too automated? How dangerous is it that planes are getting more and more automated? Or is that a good thing, do you think?
0: Uh, you know, I'm going to say I'm 50%. I'm pre- I, I could argue that either side. How much sex are you having? <laughs> too much once a week or not enough once a week? You can argue both sides of that because it depends on the perspective you're looking at. Automation, when airplanes automate certain functions, they do it because the machine is a better and more reliable calculator of the data so they can put in the math how long is the runway how wet is the runway how much does this airplane weigh and figure out in a matter of seconds how much stopping distance this airplane is going to need to do and then make that happen on the airplane that's an automated (laughs) landing and under certain conditions it's probably better to have the plane do it than the pilot now here's the flip side of that the flip side of that is that if you have pilots doing automated landings especially the tricky ones too much they lose their ability to do the tricky landings and what do they do when they must and that's the yin and the yang of automation mm-hmm. because the machine can do some things better and one of the things it can do better is strip pilots of their skills of their flying skills now it may be I, I like to think I'm being, I, I'm moving with the innovations of the world. It may be that they, we are just in a transition period, and the pilots who are what they call stick and rudder pilots, you know, they learn to fly as kids, and they, they feel, you know, they feel the weight of the airplane, and they, you know, they they got it. The Lindberghs, you know, the Lindbergh uh, era flyers, that stick and rudder pilots will not be here forever. But the pilots who are the 27-year-olds, you know, who, who flight simulators since they were three and understand the computer that can take my phone and, you know, fly an airplane with it because they understand technology, they'll be the pilots of tomorrow. And they may have a better relationship with automation. They may mm-hmm. understand the technology. So it could be that we're in that transition period. I do. I hear pilots my age and and older saying things like, you know, pilots have lost their stick and rudder skills. You know, this is bad for safety. I'm not so sure I agree. I think it's a different skill. We're entering a new time when new skills are needed.
1: Well, the reverse of that then is when one of those more and more automated and technologically marvelous planes goes down, then it becomes more difficult to work out what happened because the people that are investigating it don't have that technological knowledge.
0: Well this is true and we found and I, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I did want to talk about sort of the the citizen investigator the armchair investigator of which I am one because we've entered a time in which the tin kickers air, air crash investigators are called tin kickers and they're called tin kickers because that's what they did but they don't do so much of that anymore. Look at Malaysia 370. We learned what happened to Malaysia 370 not from people who do aviation we learned from people who do satellite technology and complex math. And they're the ones who told us this plane went there, not here. This plane was powered on, not crashed into the sea. So that's a whole new thing. And I think we will have, I think I think that we will have more technological armchair cyber contributors to air accident investigations. And the tin kickers, the folks who know engines and uh metal metallurgical fracture rates and all of that they'll still be they'll still be required but they need to learn a new trade or they need to get different people in there and they still is a lot of concentration on the mechanical side of airplane accidents when really the bulk of them are much more on the human performance side and i don't mean by that just the pilot i'm talking about operations people and mechanics and ramp workers and all sorts of people who come in contact with airplanes so you know i think it is a new day i think it is a new day and air crash investigations need to evolve and i think i feel like i'm on the bleeding edge of that by contributing with the crash detectives contributing a scenario that could have happened in which i did the research sometimes in my pajamas on the internet and here's information that I called the Australians, for example, on page 46 and said, can this cause that? Because I know you have the report. And they said, I don't know. Because they're not looking. Because they're too much kicking the tin. And not enough kicking the digits.
1: Okay, well, just one more question then and we'll finish. And you know, we've been talking for the past hour about air crashes. Inevitably, you know, some lurid examples of, <laughs> of things going wrong. But again... The point of this book is really to get across the idea that you quote a, um, a a famous story of a of a pilot at some point pulling into the gate and saying, "Ladies and gentlemen, you've arrived." You know, you're, that's the safest part of your journey over now. Or something. <laughs> you know, we keep on saying that. Air travel is is incredibly safe. Now, if I have just, you know, wandered into the W.H. Uh, Smiths at Heathrow Airport and picked up this book and started leaving through it, convince and me I that... Hope I hope sh-
0: everyone will, <laughs> yeah. and I hope everyone will do just that.
1: <laughs> convince me that I should actually get on the plane.
0: <laughs> you get on a plane. I will so do that. Thank you for that question. You get on a plane, like millions of others, every day. You depart from point A and you land at point B and nothing happens to you, you are in absolute safety. And that's because everything we've learned from disasters past has made it safer for you. That's why we're so safe. That's what aviation has, as far as I'm concerned, to offer the world. How the lessons of flying can make you a better person, a better communicator, a better decision maker. All of these things come from aviation. And the other thing is, We are where we are today because of the human-centered nature of aviation, and the results are awe-inspiring. There's just no other way to say it. That, to me, is a happy ending even to a book called The Crash Detectives.
1: Well, that indeed is a perfect place for us to finish. So I've been talking to Christine Negroni. We've been talking about The Crash Detectives Investigating the World's Most Mysterious Air Disasters, which is out now from Atlantic. Christine, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me.
0: Thank you. This was a lot of fun. We really got our geek on.
1: (laughs) You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
0: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little
0: Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.